is time for the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, joined as I am every week back from West Virginia, Mr. Yeah. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist for the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, our long national nightmare has ended. Oscar Gonzalez has been brought up to the Guardians. Yes, Sponge, SpongeBob <laughs> has been finally released, and uh, we'll see what he does. He's gotten a couple hits already, so that's good. And it, that will be one of the – every team, even teams that are smart or dumb, they always have these weird stories. Like, what were they waiting for, or why did they do that? And the – I think the luckiest guy actually on the team has been Gabriel Arias because he wrote out really a lot of poor performances at the plate and everything. And, I mean, now he gets a chance to play. That makes some sense. But what they were doing with two utility infielders with he and Freeman just made no sense, especially once Freeman established himself as a guy who could do it. You know, he could sit and then play various positions and hit. Meanwhile, SpongeBob was held hostage in Columbus. And <laughs> I thought it wasn't a bit – I was okay when they sent him down because he was, he was messed up. He was messed up in spring training when I saw him. And after about 80 at-bats, it was still the same. But I thought, go down there, give him about 100 at-bats and get him going. Well, 100 turned into, I think, 250. And finally, he sprung. Free at last. Free at last. SpongeBob is free at last. <laughs> So I wasn't sure if we'd start with the Browns or the Guardians today. Why don't we just go Guardians since we're sure. kind of off on this? So um, we haven't had a podcast, Terry, since the trade last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, number one, did you like the trade? I, we heard from a few fans emailing who weren't crazy about it. Uh, what did you think of getting Syndergaard? He's going to start tonight for the Guardians. What did you think of the deal, and did you think that, that it was the right move, I guess, is the question? Well, I, I think the headline that I wrote for the story is sad to see Rosario go, but it makes some sense. And that's that's exactly how I feel about that because I love how Rosario played. I'm not saying performance, but his approach to the game was terrific. And I fell really into his camp, his very first spring training. Remember, they got he and Jimenez in. And people will probably forget this part. So they decide Jimenez is going to play short, which, by the way, told you what everybody thought of of Rosario defensively. Because the year before, in 2020, the uh, COVID year, Rosario was a starting shortstop for the Mets, and then they brought uh, Jimenez out of, remember those, uh, those little camps they had for people, and put him at short and bench Rosario. So they put Rosario in the outfield. In like early in spring training, not at the start or whatever. They just kind of threw the idea at him, and he tried really hard. He struggled, but he never complained about this. And then he was even playing a little bit of the outfield early on and not playing. He was in and out of the lineup. Jimenez didn't hit. Jimenez went to the minors. This is in 21. Rosario takes over at short. And, of course, when the calendar turns to June, he starts to hit. And they even looked at this outfield thing again the following spring with him. He never complained about that. And you should say, well, players are paid and they should do that. But a lot of these guys, they may not do it publicly, but you'll hear, you know, the rumbling, oh, man, I'm in. So why do they keep moving the outfield? What did I do? But you never heard that at all from him. So I I was big on that. And, of course, he and Jose are always, you know, uh, pushing the guys to run. And I liked how uh, Rosario led the, the battle last year. Who could lead the team in infield hits? He was the behind that. Yeah, that was the best. That was the best. I mean, that, I've never <laughs> heard that. And we may never hear that again. From especially a guy who's like six foot two, two hundred and ten pounds, and a big athlete. 
So I, I thought he was behind all the uh, the good stuff that the Guardians had. Unfortunately, I don't know what happened to him defensively. I mean, he was never great, but he was really bad this year, especially going to his left. Yeah, and I think that's why they were ready to kind of move on. And it, but you're right, though. Terry, um, Paul Hoynes, our colleague who covers the Guardians, I, th- I thought he wrote a really nice piece after the trade about yes. how, uh, you know, Ahmed Rosario, what, they couldn't have asked for a better bridge player no. between between Francisco Lindor and whatever is next, right? And and I, I was listening to uh, some of the games over the weekend and watching, and uh, Pedro Grifal, the White Sox manager, was saying, we need to play more like the Guardians. Yeah, they do. You I know mean, what I mean? This... And other teams are saying it. And a big reason that teams are saying that is because of Ahmed Rosario and, and the culture that he's helped build there the last couple of years. It really, it's going to carry on even though he's gone. Yes, which he is and a, Jose... quite a testament. I mean, Jose is... It's like Jose is so great, it's almost left unsaid that he drives whatever, whether it's on the field or off the field. You know, he's been doing the running out of his helmet, dirt flying all over, sliding head first. But then he got an ally in an older player in Rosario. And remember, baseball is a very heavy Latino sport. So when you have those two as your leaders there, and then you have, you know, Quan bought into it and the rest of them. Uh, they just played that way. Uh, it was kind of like Napoli was one of those guys in 2016. Uh, while it wasn't all about running there, it was just about play the game the right way. You know, Jason Giambi they had before that. They have these guys that pass through that Francona grabs onto. Um, so, but the, the tough thing for uh, Ahmed this year is he knew that they had 15,000 shortstops behind him and he knew his contract was up and he knew his salary was approaching 8 million and he knew he's in Cleveland. So this was not going to happen. I mean, I still think by the way, maybe they wouldn't want to do it because they don't think he has enough homers. I think if you just left Rosario alone and wanted him to learn how to play the outfield, he could do it. He's a good enough athlete. He could have. And you're right. There were balls going over his head that he misjudged and he Mm -hmm. never said a word about it. And they, they, they got such a great, um, not necessarily a talent, but just a great fit for what they were trying to do when they got him. I remember deal. Really was. I talked to a guy from New York and he just hated him. And I, and I just said, man, it sounds like this guy's awful. But Rosario was a number one rated prospect at one point in all of Major League Baseball, not just the Mets. And I think that hurt him. Uh, he just wasn't – he's not a fluid athlete. If you watch him, he, he's like one of these guys that runs – fast in a straight line but laterally he's not so he's not so good and that was what happens to him you know in the field and even you think he should he should steal more bases than he did but it's not like it's there whereas triples you know out of the box he's like he's shot out of a cannon he's running hard on everything he can run in straight lines but uh he just and i don't think that's a lack of effort i think it's just how genetically he is i mean look at him he's in great shape and he loves to play. So, and uh, meanwhile, the Dodgers, I'm like, what are you? If they were talking about this trade, they should have jumped on this thing earlier because this guy's going to help you coming off the bench or whatever you want to do with him, especially with a team that's at 227 against lefties. I mean, this is, you could look at Ahmad's numbers mostly from year to year. They're almost always end up being very close to the same, including like this year, he was hitting 302 against lefties. His career is 303. You know, if you look at, <laughs> 
the last few years of 162 game seasons going to his final year with the Mets. Um, I think he likes 272, 276, 275. The OPS is in that low 700s. Uh, you just could write them down for that. So um, I'm at, but meantime, what it does is finally they could look at these the shortstop situation. They're gonna they're saying they're gonna play everybody, but they really want to see a lot more of areas. Why did you carry them all year? In fact, I would be upset if all of a sudden they turned around, and gave the job just to Freeman. And, you know, have Arias as a utility man. The one thing Arias has proved, he's not a good utility man. We know that. I mean, defensively he can, but off the bench, he's hopeless hitting. He just – he can't do it. All right, Terry. Well, we, I heard from a couple of fans. I'm guessing you did too. Let's talk about Noah Syndergaard for a second. The, the, Guardians, didn't, the Guardians didn't get enough back for Ahmed. They, didn't, they should have asked for more. Like, did you feel like the return – was what they should have gotten given the market. And, and the thing that's different about the market these days, Terry, as opposed to years ago, so many teams are still alive for wild card spots. There's a lot more teams that are not selling compared to the you know the way it was 10 years ago. But do you think they got enough back? I think they got what they could get back. And I've got it from high places, both within the organization and um, outside in MLB. They've been trying to market him for months. And just there was not – the defense this year especially just killed his value. And they couldn't – see, they were able to hide him some with the shifts, with put extra guys over there. And then they would put Jimenez next to him, you know, and near that uh, second base. I remember how he has trouble going to his left. So Jimenez was over there with the, with his great range and everything else. And now it just it just was exposed. So I don't think there was much more to get. I have to admit, I'm totally underwhelmed by Syndergaard. I mean, fine, they want to trade it, try it. This is, it really is a baseball lottery ticket. You know, Syndergaard has never been the same since he had the Tommy John surgery. And in 2020, right? Yes. And so his velocity went from 97 to 93 to 92. Also, what I was told is his movement on his pitches just seem to die. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, I would say it's almost a myth that you automatically, your arm is fine after you get a Tommy John. There's been a lot of guys that's not been the case. Uh, I'll tell you a really good book and it's older now on this. uh, It gets a little technical, but you go through it. It's called the arm, I believe by Jeff Passan who writes for ESPN. And he looked at a lot of the different guys who've had the Tommy John, you know, some worked, some didn't. A lot of theories that people offered on why guys are hurting their arms. Uh, basically, death by radar gun is what part of, he didn't call it that, I do, where they start rolling the radar guns out of high school games and everything else, and these kids, and these showcases, especially these summer showcases, the kids are all trying to light up the radar guns so they can get a college scholarship, they can get noticed, and your, you know, your career whether you're amateur or pro as a pitcher hangs by a thread or really a ligament, you know, the elbow. And so that was leads to a lot of the things that Senegars had trouble. And I don't know what to make of blisters and fingers. I, they always worry me though, the finger injury. So we'll see what he's got. Um, I have to admit he was better in 22 than I thought when I went back and looked at the stats, because I think he was 10 and 10 with an ERA around four, which would look pretty good. But this year it's just been brutal. 
Yeah, he was what uh, one and four with a seven point sixteen ERA. I think when he went on the injured list yeah. uh, in June. But I, I got to tell you, Terry, I feel for this guy. I mean, yes, it's hard enough being like a phenom coming up in, in the Mets system and all the pressure. But just just to hear him talk the, over the last week since the trade, I mean, yes, he's had blister problems. I think he broke a nail on one on his index finger also. But like he, he's basically saying, I've had there's so many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Like he's had so many people telling him, try this, try that, try try this approach, that approach, change your arm angle. And it just sounds like he he's come to a good place with the Guardians, I think, to fix that stuff where th- these guys know pitching, they know how to fix mechanics, and they're not going to clutter his head with like 50 ideas about what to do. They're just going to let him do what he does. And they're going to like maybe make an adjustment here or there. Like I think he, he probably couldn't have ended it in too many better places than Cleveland. Oh, oh absolutely. If, if he had to choose it. I mean, Dan O'Dowd, who was here, but then was GM of the uh, Colorado Rockies for years and does a lot of work on MLB and is very candid on things. He said, uh, nobody is better on pitching than, than Cleveland. And this is a guy that found that out, too, after he went to the Rockies. He, no matter what he tried for pitching there, he couldn't make it work. A couple of things on, on Syndergaard. Uh, and this happens to some hitters, too. Sometimes you have tried so much. So many stances or so many grips or so many whatever, you forgot how you actually pitched when you were good. You can't remember. I've seen it happen to uh, shooters in basketball. So you can think shooting in basketball. I don't know if there's a, a hockey analogy, uh, but because there's so much reactive there. Yeah, maybe goaltenders, but that's yeah. about it. Yeah, but I know what you're but, saying. But the rest is, ba- you know, the hitter goes to the plate. It starts at a station. Everything stops. You so you, it's like there you are. A pitcher goes to pitch. Everything is stopped till he starts, or even a guy say at the foul line. You know all three of those and the mental part of it. And remember, we've seen it once in a while with a guy like Steve Sachs at second base, uh, which is a short throw, and they just they can't figure out how they used to do it. So that's why I think they want to just say go throw. But the challenge will be what was the delivery that I used that actually worked. So that's number one. Number two is you look in the mirror and go, what happened to me? I remember at one point, Danny Ferry, this is after he came to the Cavaliers from Italy. And what we didn't know until many years later, in fact, Danny told me for uh, one of my books that he never told anybody because he hit it. He not only had knee surgery, he had one of the early microfracture surgeries. And they really? were real good at it. Then there came clean outs and all this. But I remember one time, this is when he's a rookie late in the season, and I was covering the Cavaliers for the, and um, his shot was messed up and um, everything else. And he said, I never could believe I would be this bad. He go, and he, you wake up. In fact, Danny had to completely retool his shot, turn himself into the old stretch four thing. It took a couple of years where he almost ended up shooting a half a set shot to make it because how he shot it before with the knee, everything was all messed up. So this will be interesting. Syndergaard from a, that kind of technical coaching thing, let's see what he does. But I think you're correct that if somebody could get him stabilized, and by the way, Francona and Carl Willis are masters of just calming people down. Well, he's got a lot, uh, pretty tough assignment tonight. His mm. first start for Cleveland oh, is going to be against yeah. the Astros in Houston tonight on Monday night. We're taping this on a Monday, and uh, 
yeah, he's going to have his hands full tonight, but this is the beginning of a process. And, and so Terry, what, what do you want to see? To, what would be a good outing for him tonight? You'd like to see five innings and. Oh yeah. If he gets three, through three. five without, he's pitched five innings twice in the minors, given up or some, all right, let's make it 10 total innings and six runs. So uh, now Chris Antonetti, I talked to him too, um, not even for the press conference, but a little afterwards. And he says he's throwing better, whatever that means that they discount heavily those last two. Uh, and they thought that they could um, work with them. But it isn't like well, oftentimes a guy will go down to AAA, and even when he's not all that good, just because he's pitched in the majors or whatever, he the numbers look really good. See, that's what's also alarming, for example, about Zach Plezak. I mean, what what's going on? That's why, he, I mean, he was going on with 6 ERA, and he went on waivers, and nobody would touch him. Because usually those guys just have enough savvy to go down there and, and get through it. So we'll see. If he gets through five innings and, and gives up four runs even, that's a start. And I don't mean just a start there. I mean, it's actually a start that the, the friend Conan Willis could live with. Oh, for sure. I mean, anybody yeah. who can eat up five innings and give up three or four runs, like that's mm. gold to this to this pitching staff right now. So, oof. all right. Well, the Guardians are at it tonight in Houston um, at the start of a road trip. And then after that, they are going to be uh, back here this weekend against the White Sox, which um, – Boy, talk about a team that folded the tent and decided to call it a call it a season. <laughs> there you go. So uh, in- interesting series against the Astros to watch starting tonight. All right. So let's take a break, Terry. What do you think? All set. All right. I think what I would like to ask you when we get back from the break is how many passes would you like to see Nick Chubb catch in 2023 for the Browns? And we also going to talk to some Joe Thomas since it's induction week down in Canton. So we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, it is Pro Football Hall of Fame induction week, and the Browns have Joe Thomas, first Brown to go in in forever, I think, and so well-deserved. That'll happen on Saturday, which is August 5th down in Canton. Of course, the Browns have their first preseason game in three days from now on August 3rd down in Canton at 8 o'clock against the Jets. Uh, I wanted to mention real quick, Ashley Bastock, our colleague, has a really charming story today on a former Brown named Vinston, Vinston Painter. And he was the guy that Mike Pettin and Andy Muller sent into the game in 2014 to pull Joe Thomas when they were blowing the Steelers out one day. They sent Vinston Painter in to replace Joe Thomas, and he basically didn't appreciate it. <laughs> So, so, but nobody ever called Vincent Painter until Ashley did to hear the story. So uh, I'd recommend checking that out. It's really a fun read. So um, uh, anything about Joe Thomas you want to get into, Terry, before we move on? One of the interesting stories, I think, you know, Phil, Phil Savage drafted Joe Thomas. And there was a – I knew he was really going to take Thomas early on because Savage loved telling me about he uh, – Ozzie Newsom was pretty cl- pretty close to taking Jonathan Ogden, but a left tackle. But Phil pounded the table to do it. You know, you get a left tackle for ten years, you don't think about it. In a different draft, that's when they were together in Baltimore. Well, I remember early on we were talking about the draft, and he told me Phil Phil Savage said that, uh, you know, this Joe Thomas he could be a ten year player. He's that good. He's he called a draft and forget, you know, and that that kind of stuck with me because at that point the Browns just about needed everything when he came in, and so the 
looked at Adrian uh, Peterson. That was the other person in the draft that they were looking at. But they were just kind of sold on, on taking the left tackle. And I was writing that all along just because he didn't tell me, oh, we're going to take him. But, you know, a lot of times what you hear from uh, a GM or somebody like that several months before a draft is far more accurate than what you'll hear several weeks. Because at that point, they're sorting through people. But you could tell when the guy falls in love with with a player. I remember when they took uh, – um, when the Browns took uh, – uh, who's the quarterback? Brian Whedon. We, the pre-drafting Brandon, Brandon, yep. Brandon Whedon, Tom Heckert loved him, and I guess, I guess so did Mike Holmgren because if you know the big man, he would he would come in after having lunch and take a look at the draft board and, and go for somebody. So let's take the twenty-eight year old. I got a good feeling <laughs> about this guy. So anyway, um, that was that was why what it was and. You know, Peterson had a had a Hall of Fame career too, but that was it was a neat thing. It was too bad the other picks weren't as uh, as solid as that. Yeah, well, ten thousand three hundred and sixty three straight snaps for Joe Thomas, so that they got that one right, that's for sure. And yeah, uh, he'll be going to the Hall of Fame on it, Saturday. I remember Joe telling me too, um, going to that last year. He said he only had about four to five hours a week on his legs. And what he meant is where he could practice because he was hardly practicing at that point. His knees were so bad, so full of arthritis, so full of everything else. And he knew that he was carrying far too much weight for what his frame should carry because that's what was needed to play the position. Because if you look at him, you see how much weight he's dropped. You know, he dropped it quickly. And so he said, I was telling them, look, I'll be in every meeting on everything, but I can't even be on the field for practice anymore and that's why when they they kind of approached him after the year do you want after he got hurt do you want to come back or whatever just couldn't do it and also the man did not want to see himself be one of these guys who like many great players they quit then they go wow i'm only in my early 30s you know i i could still play and then come back and then you're not the same and then maybe you go to some other team all that kind of stuff I mean, he really did. You know, he and Jim Brown walked away, you know, at the top. Because even though Joe was down to five hours a week, those five hours, a couple on the practice field for that one week, and then he was still playing at an all-pro level. Yeah, you can ask any of the guys who were playing against him. They'll tell you that, Terry. But they, So it'll be a great week down there in Canton, and uh, I'll invite you to stay with cleveland.com slash Browns. All week we've got some really – Good content coming. We talked to a lot of people who know Joe, knew Joe Thomas back in high school all the way through his NFL mm-hmm. days. So keep track of that. So, all right, let's get into Nick Chubb. Last week, Terry, we said we wanted to spend some time today talking about Nick Chubb and should he catch the ball more. And I, I know you've been writing about fans who are like, give the ball to Chubb, give the ball to Chubb, give it to him more, and, and why they don't necessarily want to do that because they don't want to wear him out. But in terms of pass catching, uh, you were asking me how many passes did Nick Chubb catch at Georgia, and I found his last season in 2017 at Georgia. How many passes do you think he caught that season for the Georgia Bulldogs? Six. That is a great guess. It was four. Can four. you believe that? Jeez. <laughs> for the entire season. And the reason um, I knew that, that it was a low number, is I saw it, whatever it was, and Dorsey was just kind of hanging around one day after a press conference. And I think myself and maybe Mary Kay, or what, not too many people were around, just a couple of us. And I'm like, 
hey, uh, what is going on? That guy caught four passes. He goes, they never threw him the ball. I forgot who the other running back was. Was it Mishaw they had or uh, who was in the backfield with them? Uh, oh, yeah. Sony, Sony Michelle was on there. Michelle, team, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. They, they threw the ball to him or they threw it to somebody else. He goes, they never, he, they act like he said, they act like he has no hands. He goes, you get, I'm not saying he's a great receiver. You could throw it and catch it. Then you got to tackle him. Of course, they never really did it that much here either. No. So I thought it'd be interesting. I just pulled Derrick Henry's numbers because okay. those two guys are compared a lot. So I want to run through, you know, Nick Chubb is not going to be Darren Sproles, right? Like no. they're not going to throw the ball to him a hundred times a season or whatever. And we McCaffrey get that or any of those guys. Yeah. Right. So let's just look real quick. So this Nick Chubb has had five years in the league. He went from 20 catches his first season to 36 to 16 to 20 to 27 last season in 2022. He had 27 catches last year for 239 yards, um, which came out to 8.9 per reception. So, uh, so that's Nick Chubb last season, 27. Derrick Henry has played seven years in the league, and here's his receiving totals. 13, 11, 15, 18, 19, 18, and then 33 last year. He was targeted 41 times last season and caught 33. How many? I'm uh, curious. What did he average per catch on that? Derrick Henry? Yeah. 12.1 uh-huh. per catch. Uh-huh. Uh, so 41 targets for Derrick Henry with 33 catches. And then just to bring it back to Nick Chubb, 27, uh, 37 targets and 27 catches. Okay. So where do you want to see Nick Chubb this year? I mean, closer to Derrick Henry numbers, more than Derrick Henry numbers in terms of targets? What is the right number? Because they do w- need to watch his workload. Correct. But I think that um, getting him the ball in space – he'd probably not be hit by four guys like when he runs through the line of scrimmage. It also gives him the ability. He, he reads opposing tacklers so well, it gives him chance to see what's going. So I would throw what, what I would throw on the ball close to 50 times. You got a 17 game schedule two or three. I mean, two times a game is 34, three times is 51. So that's not exactly like we're just firing a ball to him all the time. And he averaged nearly nine yards a catch. Some receivers are like around slot receivers are in that area. Let's see what happens. Yeah, I don't think three is like excessive. I think you're mm-hmm. right, Terry. And the other thing I'd like to see the Browns try, and again, Deshaun Watson saying everything's new. Like, I think one of the new things is what you're talking about. And it seems like when they do throw him the ball, it's a screen pass or a swing mm-hmm. behind the line of scrimmage like every time. And like, could Nick Chubb run like a quick wheel route or like a five-step, you know, like a little post corner where he's catching the ball in space, like you said, behind the line of scrimmage, on the other side of the line of scrimmage, yeah. behind the line, behind the line. And then he's going up against safeties and, and, and cornerbacks. If he catches something out there, I'm not saying they should be throwing the ball to him 80 yards down no. the field, but if they threw it 10 or 15 and let him see what he could do, I think that would a reduce the wear and tear and b give him some space. So he doesn't have to fight through 11 guys every time. Think, what do you think? about this. You put, you, you, because you're going to see a lot of uh, wide formations, lots of receivers and guys spread, spread formations. Just think if you put Nick Chubb in the slot a couple times, like out there, 
that would the defensive coordinator his brains would fall out of his head he would like what what do we do now and who do you put on him chubb usually has one or two bad drops a year just it looks like he's just some little kid and the ball goes through his hands but as you mentioned before what did he catch he only i think he caught 80 percent of the passes thrown to him by the numbers you gave me are pretty close so hey throw him the ball well, let's see if that happens. I, I think three is a good number, though. I, I think three targets a game is about right to, mm-hmm. to, to what I'm feeling. And a lot of it will depend on who the number two running back is and how many um, touches they get that player. But I, I think three feels right to me. So let's see. Maybe that's part of the new the new offense. So, um, All right, Terry, while we're still on the Browns, do you want to get into this stadium stuff at all? You wrote a column over the weekend about the stadium, and I thought it was really interesting. You included in there a lot about the Nashville and Buffalo deals and what those what what were involved there um anything real quick on the stadium you want to get into basically i mean there's a lot of people who are going to say they want the haslam's they have the money they should pay for their own stadium um the one place where that actually happened but it was a unique situation was los angeles and that's because they built a stadium for two teams not one and it the nfl was so desperate to get into the la market that this is what the league had to do. And it was like a $4 billion investment to make this happen. Uh, and they were able to get, they solved a couple problems they wanted to take care of. One was the Chargers, get them out of their stadium because San Diego didn't want any up the money. And then they wanted to put the Rams back in LA. And this enabled them to do that. So that's the reason they did it. But the rest, if you think about, What's been going on lately? The last two places where the uh, stadiums are being built, Buffalo, for example, people in Buffalo have been scared to death they're going to move that team to Toronto. If they don't get to the stadium, they're going to take our team away. Smaller market. Nashville knows that that franchise is there. That thing moved once already. It moved from Houston to Nashville. So, and they also see themselves as this rising southern city, you know, almost like another Atlanta or something. So they went with the dome and everything else. Basically, these places is two thirds public money, one third private money. You're going to hear a lot of arguing and everything else here, but in the end, that's probably what it's going to be, you know, city, county, state money. And that's, you could say they shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that. But that's how it is. And the NFL knows people want their franchises. And it's not like you could just go create one somewhere else. One guy sent a thing to me. He said, is there, is there public money available uh, for me when I go buy my next car? And I did answer him. I said, only if 65,000 people pay to watch you drive it. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it, it plays out. So uh, we'll, we'll see. They got a long way to go with it yet. But um, – I was shocked when I I was shocked when I looked at the prices of this too. I, I you know Buffalo a, a billion 1.4 billion doesn't even get you a dome. 2.1 billion gets you a dome in Tennessee, which means if you want a dome here, even if they started like next month, you're probably at 2.5 billion or whatever. They should build a like a combination Browns slash Taylor Swift stadium where she can just be there like eighty dates a year. Eighty dates and a year, could, yes. yeah. She could Spring people Steve, just come here, you know, all yeah. those kind of things. So yeah, it'd be like a Las Vegas residency or something. So 
that's that'll be uh, that would get the public their money back with all, all yeah. the shows. So there you are. All right. Well, the Browns are back. Uh, they're off today on Monday, which is the 31st of July, and they're back to training camp tomorrow in Berea. It's the first of eight practices that fans can go see starting on August 1st. So, and they're like we said, their first game for the preseason is Thursday night against the Jets. So. Hey, Terry, I want to touch on the Cavs real quick. Uh, Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the Cavs, um, had a really interesting interview with Darius Garland, who is has joined J.B. Bickerstaff and a bunch of other NBA players and coaches over in Basketball Without Borders in Africa. And Darius told Chris Fedor that he's really hitting the weight room this offseason, trying to get more physical uh, after realizing what the playoffs were all about and, and seeing how physical the Knicks were and what the playoffs demand. I wanted to ask you, what do you want to see his body type look like? Uh, and what do you see, I, I guess, in terms of his game, what do you want to see him working on in his game this offseason in terms of taking that next step? I've compared him to Mark Price in the past, and this is very similar to what Price tried to do, too, is kind of make himself stronger in that. And he never really was able to do it, David. I mean, he got bigger and stronger than like when he came into the league, but his frame is what it is. And so I don't know. You like guys to work out and things, but he, he go back to his getting his knee injury at Vanderbilt, getting kind of having shoulder and other problems when he's coming to the league. He just is, is going to have to deal with some injuries and things. So what you want to do maybe is watch his minutes and keep him as healthy as possible. But, I, you know, it's just that's who, that's who he is. But I'm glad he's thinking about that because some guys may just say, well, that's just the way I am, and I'm just going to work on my jump shot or something. And so we'll, we'll see. You know, the big thing will be if he and Donovan can just play better together. They're still they, – they did a lot of take what I call taking turns. It's my turn. It's your turn. And they never really got to – I remember JB telling a couple of us writers one time, he says, I really see this thing where you have, um, say, Darius on the right side of the court and Mitchell on the left and making it really hard for any defense to load up on either side. Well, sometimes you would see that, but the ball would never swing from that. Say Darius had it on the right. Okay, it's my turn. He goes and runs a pick and roll wherever it is on the right, and Mitchell just stands over there. Or – the flip side the other way. So if you, for that to work, you've really got to move the ball more. And this is going to fit into also, can Darius do more running off picks? This is something that he can learn. This is what Mark Price learned later in his career. He became very good at running these little curls, ran across the baseline, came across, caught passes, and, and made jump shots. That would be very effective for him with, say, Mitchell out front, where Mitchell could either take the ball that uh, rim himself or that. So those are some things I'd like to see him just to be better without the ball, moving without it, because they're going to supposedly put in those kind of plays for Max, Max Struess, so that off-the-ball stuff. How about for Darius also? Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and one of the things I'm wondering, Terry, I mean, we saw Jalen Brunson, who's not the biggest guard in the league, get into the lane and draw a lot of fouls. And I do wonder, I I think Darius Garland's free throws attempted per game has gone up from like 1.2 to, is a rookie to 4.7 free throws attempted per game last season. Which is pretty good, actually. Which is pretty good, you know. And if he can add even a couple more of those by by being strong or getting in there, being an 86% free throw shooter, he's going to get two or three more easy points a game. 
um, just by going in there. So maybe that's part of what he's thinking is like, can I get into the lane more, especially with all these guys you mentioned spacing the floor, mm-hmm. opening up some creases. So maybe that's what he's thinking. I don't know. Yeah. Brunson's just more sturdy though. I will say that he's, he's just put together stronger, but I'm glad he's thinking about stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he's really putting the time in and um, it'll be interesting to see what his body looks like when he comes into training camp. So, all right, Terry, we've got a couple of Hey Terry questions here. We're going to get to them. I think we got a few minutes here. Uh, the first one is from Eric B. And Eric says, hey, Terry and David, in the latest podcast, you were talking about the Browns kicking game and how kickers have personal coaches and that a big part of Bubba Ventron's job is handling the mental aspects. It got me thinking about he and other coaches like Carl Willis and Chris Valeka of the Guardians manage the relationship between player and personal coaches. Are they communicating with these coaches? How often and to what extent? I coach at the college level and many, if not all, of the players we deal with have personal coaches. And I'm always looking for new ways to navigate those waters. Love the podcast, articles, and books. Dealing was my personal favorite. And he says, thank you both for all the content. Best wishes. And he says, P.S. David, I love when you make when you occasionally make reference to hockey. I know Cleveland doesn't have a team, but I've always loved the sport. I root for the Blue Jackets because they're in Ohio, but I grew up rooting for the Blackhawks. And I went to grad school in Chicago during the beginning of the Blackhawks Stanley Cup run, which was a lot of fun. So thanks, Eric. I appreciate the letter and the kind words. Um, Terry, this kind of balance between the guys on your team that are coaching you versus your personal guru that you have off to the side. Uh, tricky to navigate. I'm, I'm guessing you've run to this, not just with, with kickers, but I'm guessing with guys with their own personal hitting coaches, just like oh, sure. Eric was mentioning. What, what have you seen? Well, Michael Brantley would say his father was his primary hitting coach all the way through his whole career. Father played in the big leagues. Um, I'm sure, David, you mentioned, do they have these guys in hockey too, these personal coaches? I'm guessing so, yeah, I especially during I, the off season, yeah. I bet, and the goalies, I bet, really do. Um because it's such a unique position. The thing that probably drives the coaches nuts is it varies so much on who is the who is the guru, how much importance the player gives to that coach. And it you talk about having to play it each individually. That's just what they have to do. And so I don't have a good answer for this. Like if he's at the college level, he's probably seeing the same exact things you see at the pro level. In that, uh, it, you know, some guys are, are really open to it. Some are, and maybe that was part of the problem for Syndergaard. He might have had personal coaches. I was just going to mention, and that. he had other coaches, mm-hmm. and everybody had a theory, and none of it was working. It's tough, and especially I know a lot of high school coaches deal with this, especially high school basketball coaches, where their AAU coach is telling them one sure. thing during the summer, and then they come in to play high school basketball, and it's like, well, my my other my AAU coach told me to do it this way. Well, that's like, not how we do it, and it's it's a lot of uh, drama. I think about tennis coaches, a lot of those tennis guys, golf, all those, they all have their specialists. So, yeah, I mean, mean, none of that, you know, in the stone age when I was playing and and, and you, I I don't remember anybody having a personal coach other than maybe dad, you know, that kind of thing. But you didn't have some guy that you were paying 50 or 100 bucks an hour or a half hour to. Different time. That's for sure. So, well, thanks for that question, Eric. Eric B., checking in and uh, send us another one. By the way, before I forget, if you want to hit us with a question, comment, send it to sports at cleveland.com and put Terry's talking in the subject line. We'll try and get it on the podcast as soon as we can. So we got one more, Terry. This is from Dennis in Greenville, South Carolina. 
And Dennis says, hey, Terry, since there are no longer a separation of National League and American League teams, do you think a realignment of the MLB divisions would create more natural rivalries? For example, the AL Central could have Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and both Chicago teams. Or imagine having both New York teams in the same division with Boston. What do you think, Terry? That's from Dennis again in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm pausing because I'm thinking (laughs) two things. One is baseball's made so many big changes, I don't think they'd want to go there right now. They know they've probably pushed the traditionalists about as far as they could be pushed. But the division thing, I like the geographics, and I like having the big markets slam against each other in the middle markets because baseball refuses to really have – I know they have their – revenue sharing and that, but they don't really address the inequity of big markets versus small markets. And that's the advantage of not only, say, the AL Central, but the NL Central has, you know, Milwaukee, St. Louis, all those kind of market-sized teams in there, too, that makes it fair. So um, I bet they do at some point. I don't know, Dave, any thoughts? Well, a couple. I I do think, like, the the Guardians – Boy, they would love to be in this division they're in now for the next 50 years, yeah. I think. Like, it's you can see, I mean, they're they're playing 500 ball and they're half game out of first. And it feels a little to me like this is baseball's way of, you know how they do the competitive balance yeah. um, mm-hmm. draft picks where the, the small market teams get extra picks and stuff. Uh, I think this is kind of like the alignment version of that. It's like, you know what? Yes, we have the Red Sox and and Yankees in the same division and, and Tampa – but like you guys stay there and we know your small market and like someone gets to come out of that and make the playoffs. And I think that's kind of like a little wink to this to the media market teams like the Guardians and Kansas City and j- just like, all right, win your division and you're in. And I think that's important uh, to create excitement in some of the markets that don't have the payroll. Uh, and the other thing, Terry, I think, you know, when the Cubs come to Cleveland, it's kind of special, right? Mm-hmm. Or when the Cubs and White Sox play or when. Yeah. It's like if you were playing the Cubs and White Sox, and if the Cubs and White Sox were playing each other all the time, um, and if the Mets and Yankees were playing each other all the time, I think that would take some of the specialness out of it for fans because they look forward to those Subway series and to having different teams come in. So I don't know. I think that would hurt that too. But it's an interesting thing to, th- to think about for sure. I will say this, you know, um, to keep in mind about the, the Guardians and that. This year, they're stumbling around 500 to win the division. But in many of the other times they've won the division, they've won well over 90 games. True. They have. It wasn't but like they but were playing a schedule that was really loaded with teams in the division, unlike this right. year. But the same time, those other teams are playing that same schedule in that division like they are now, and they didn't win 90 games. True. They didn't. And so, just like now, it, it's changed around. But... But David, I mean the fact that are they at five hundred today? I forgot what's their what's their yes, record. Yes, they are five, exactly okay. five hundred. Yeah. I mean, come on! If somebody were to tell you you're going into August and you got one start out of McKenzie and you didn't have you know Bieber's done basically and Quantrill's been ten starts or whatever and been terrible and got three rookies in there and you're bringing in Noah Syndergaard on a lottery ticket to try and help things. Does that sound like a 500 team? Not at all. I mean, you think this would be, you're going to lose 90 to a hundred. So they continually overachieve kind of regardless of their circumstances. Um, 
And I just think that's a fair thing to point out because they, they, they like to just, well, dismiss because this is the division they're in. Um, well, the other teams are in a division too, and they can't, Kansas City can't do anything since 14 and 15. They don't know what to do. The Pirates don't know in the National League. They don't know what to do. There's so many teams that you could just get. Terry Francona says you can get bad and stay bad in baseball for a long time. Um, and here, especially since Francona came in and teamed up with um, Antonetti and Chernoff, I mean, that was one thing Dolan did not want to do. He did not want to just go and lose 110 games. He did not want that. And so they and they haven't done it. They've always doing. Uh, Frank Kona calls it threading the needle, you know, working the young guys in and trying to win at the same time. And they keep, I mean, they, they've had, uh, you know, nine winning seasons in 10 years and six trips to the playoffs. And this year they'll probably have a winning season again. I don't ask me how. Yeah, it's really something. And the fact that they're into the division and there might be playoff baseball again here this year. And that, that is a blast for everybody. Mm-hmm. So. So we shall see. But you're right, Terry. Anytime they're making a deal, they have to figure out, all right, not only can it help us next year, but how does it help us now? And a lot of teams don't have to deal with that choice. Yeah, they just trade everybody. But yeah. Yeah, we're, we're looking to the future. We're rebuilding or we're going to win now. They don't have to do both at the same time. And I mean, the Guardians always pull it off. And sometimes they kick themselves like they wish now, going back, that before the 2020 season, that they had traded Lindor. And they went into it with him having two years left on this contract, figuring that, oh, well, we can maybe trade him at the, that year goes bad with a year and a half. But, of course, that ended up being the COVID season and everything. So there was no trade made. So then with a year to go, they got far less than they probably would have gotten before that. And so that's uh, always things that weigh on them and, and what, what to do. And that's why when you mentioned Savali, they're probably going, well, let's see, we got two full years plus a half year, uh, that should be worth a lot, but it's actually good for us too. So they're, uh, they're probably sitting there going, the twins, the twins are refusing to win. <laughs> well, we can at least try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they got eight weeks to do it. So, yeah. all right. Thanks for those questions, you guys. Um, again, if you want to hit us with something, sports at cleveland.com is a great place to email that. And you can also hit Terry on his Facebook page and we'll try to get it on the next podcast. Uh, also, before I forget, Terry has a weekly newsletter. It comes out every Monday. If you want to sign up for that, it's free. And once a week in your email, you will get a roundup of everything Terry has done over the last week. Just go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and you can sign up for that. Again, cleveland.com slash newsletters. Terry, you have a book recommendation for this week, yes? Yeah, a book and an author, actually, too. His name is Robert Whitlow. First name, Robert, W-H-I-T-L-O-W. And Robert Whitlow is, he's while he falls under the Christian fiction, he's he's a, he's kind of a lot like John Grisham. He's a, he's a lawyer up in Georgia himself, and he writes these novels, and he's been doing it for about 15 years or so. I'm reading one called Double Indemnity now, but I think I've read probably – at least 10 of his books enjoy them very much. Uh, and just like Grisham, he's just got a nice way of weaving characters with the legal stuff. Uh, check him out, Robert Whitlow. And it's all fiction, but it's based on like his, yeah, you, you can see it. his legal background. Yeah, sl- you can shine tell through, us right? In there, right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, kind of family, family mess and law firms, you know, kind of sometimes law firms have their own families and things. Uh, I just think I just he's a just a nice, easy read, but that doesn't mean this stuff is simple. 
We'll check it out. Another good book. You sure read a lot, Terry. I'm really jealous. I should start reading more. <laughs> well, it's my escape, really. I, especially a lot of, like a lot of different fiction. And um, and I have my, my favorite writers, you know, just by anything by Jeff Shahara. I mentioned uh, yeah. uh, The Old Lion, the, the Teddy Roosevelt uh, novel that he has out, and a lot of his uh, Civil War fiction ones. So there's still great books out there to read, and they don't, you know, they don't have to be great classic books. I mean, I, I think it's just nice to have stuff that uh, you could go back and read 20 pages and fall asleep and go to bed. All right. Well, speaking of which, that's going to do it for us on today's Terry's Talking. And I uh, just want to tell everybody we are going to be off for the next two weeks, um, and we'll be back uh, around August 22nd for our next podcast, and we'll be heading right into the fall and go right straight through the football season. So. We've got a lot of exciting things to look forward to. But next couple of weeks, Terry and I are going to try and read some books. And, okay, there you go. And take, take a little downtime. So, And I know you love hiking and, and doing all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure you're excited to get outside. So as am I. Okay. <laughs> all right. We'll see everybody in a couple of weeks. And thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Terry's Talking.